Joshua 23. Joshua 23. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left in order that you may not associate with these nations these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day for the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you and as for you no man has stood before you to this day one of your men puts to flight a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All has been fulfilled for you, and not, not one of them has failed. And it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off his good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. We read this passage of scripture a couple weeks ago by a godly head of state, Joshua, as he leaves his office into retirement, and we saw the point that he made, and that is God says, I will be with you and fight for you in all your wars and give you victory in all of your battles if you just cling to me. If you cling to me, be faithful to me, stay true to me, obey me, look to me in faith. Honor my word. I'll fight for you, and I'll give you victory in all your battles. I've shown you already, he says in effect, that I could do that, and I have done it, because I've already run a lot of great nations out of town through you, and you've conquered the land of Canaan. But if you ever compromise me, if you ever break down the antithesis between the church and the world, if you ever blur the difference, between Christians and non-Christians, Israelites and Canaanites. If you ever prove unfaithful to me, 
Then what remaining nations that are left in the land of promise I will use to chasten and discipline you. And though when you're faithful, I will chase these nations away and give you victory over them. If you're unfaithful to me, I will not drive these nations out. But in verse 13, they shall be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Painful harassment, persecution, suffering, heartache as a result of the remaining enemies of Christ within the land because Israel compromised the faith. We're back in the 17th century. And we've just finished looking over the past several weeks at the godly Christian Republic under Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell died September the 3rd, 1658. And beginning a couple years later was some of the most severe suffering and persecution the churches of Scotland and England had ever and have ever experienced. It was, among other things, because of failure to be unified in the truth, compromises, petty jealousies and rivalries that split the people of God. And so God used Charles II, James II, and their governments to be thorns in their eyes. So now let's go to that period of time that we normally call the Restoration, the Restoration of the Monarchy. Oliver Cromwell died in 1658. He was succeeded by his son, Richard who was a Christian man, but he was not the man his father was. He preferred hunting to governing. He wasn't able to hold together the various groups that were at each other's throat, so to speak, and that were vying for power at the end of the protectorate. The people who were loyal to the Stuart tyrants, the Presbyterians who wanted a monarchy, the independent preachers who were uh, dissatisfied with various forms of religious toleration, and the Republicans, the radical Republicans, who wanted a republic even if you have to use the sword to establish it. There were others who wanted to keep the present parliament. There were those who wanted to reinstate the old rump parliament, which had executed Charles I, and which, because it betrayed uh, the principles of the great Christian revolution that century, Oliver Cromwell later had to dissolve. During Richard Cromwell's reign as Lord Protector, a plot was formed by the army, the New Model Army, and the great Calvinistic independent church leaders, including John Owen, to force Richard Cromwell to dissolve the present parliament and to reassemble the old rump parliament. There was an heroic general named General Monk that Cromwell himself had sent to Scotland to maintain the peace and to manage the occupation of Scotland. And he was probably the most powerful general at the time. And when he came out in favor of restoring the Stuart monarchy in the person of Charles II, not particularly because he liked Charles II, but because he believed there was no other way to restore order and peace in England, when Monk came down in favor of Charles II and the restoration of the monarchy, that meant the army was behind Monk, and so Richard Cromwell resigned from office in order to avert another civil war. On May the 29th, 1660, Charles Stuart II 
was officially crowned king. Charles Stuart was the son of Charles Stuart I, who you remember was the son of James I. When he was crowned king, the protectorate, the Christian Republic, came to an immediate end, and the old monarchy was restored. Because of all the rivalries and jealousies of the various groups who backed Cromwell and the Republic, supporters of Charles II were able to restore him to the throne without any conditions placed upon him of any kind. You remember the Scottish Presbyterians at one point earlier wanted to crown Charles II king over Cromwell, but he was such a, a, a immoral person they, and who leaned toward Roman Catholicism that they couldn't justify it until they got him converted, in quotes. So he satisfied them, you remember, by taking the pledge, the solemn league and covenant and promise to be a faithful Presbyterian. Well, at this point in time, when he was crowned king, nobody demanded any such conditions upon him. And so when Charles II, a Stuart, a tyrant at heart, just like his daddy and his granddaddy, that when Charles Stuart came to the throne, all of the civil and religious liberties uh, that in defense of which so much blood had been shed over so many years and so much suffering endured were laid at his feet. The Anglican Church, with all of its bishops, was immediately restored to its rank and its power, its wealth, its authority. And the Anglican Church proved that although they had not been in control of things for about a decade, they were still the great oppressors and persecutors of the church that they once were. Well, why is this period called the Restoration? What did the restoration of King Charles II in 1660, in fact, restore? Now, this is important. Three things. First of all, it restored the monarchy. England had a king again. But it wasn't the same monarchy. It wasn't an Elizabethan monarchy. It was a monarchy largely because of Oliver Cromwell's efforts that had almost become constitutional and very limited in its power and authority. Secondly, Parliament was restored on its old basis on the earlier side of Cromwell. You remember Cromwell had made several changes and tried to have several experiences with Parliament in order to have a representative government. He changed constituencies. He allowed very, uh, more people to vote. He brought members into the Parliament for the first time from Scotland to Ireland. All that was over. They were back to the old Parliament before Cromwell. And thirdly, the Church of England had been restored. The monarchy was restored. You remember they didn't have a king during Cromwell's times, ever since the execution of Charles I in the late 1640s. Parliament was different. It tried to be representative. It tried to be Christian. Uh, but it never could succeed. And so the old parliament was restored. And also during the Cromwellian years, the Church of England no longer had any authority because you remember by the root and branch petition in the 1640s, which John Milton himself signed, as well as Cromwell and others, that the Episcopal Church, with its offices of bishop, dean, priest, etc., were declared, was declared illegal. And so the, the Calvinists, the Presbyterians, the Independents, vied for power and control of things. Well, now the old Church of England had been restored, and yet it wasn't the same. 
Before Cromwell and the rise of Puritanism, the Church of England was the comprehensive church. Anybody that was a Christian was in the Church of England. But now things were different. Many of the Puritans had been driven out. There were nonconformists. There were dissenters. There were independents. There were people separate from the Anglican Church. And the church, like the nation of England, never entirely lost this great Puritan Calvinistic undertone. So it was a restoration of an old way of life, but a restoration with a very important difference. With the restoration of Charles II, there was a tremendous moral change in England. Under Cromwell, Ireland, after he licked the Irish rebels, Ireland endured a time of peace and order, prosperity and godliness. After he had to whip the Scots because they were trying to replace him with a king, uh, you remember what the first-hand witnesses said it was a time of peace and prosperity and more people won to Christ in Scotland during the occupation of Scotland by Cromwell than any other time in their history. England was experiencing a tremendous advance of the Protestant Reformation. Morals of people were changing. But now there was a declension, a rapid declension. In fact, I don't know of any other time in which there was a more rapid, more complete, more discouraging moral change to pass over a people than that change that spread over this entire nation with the restoration of Charles II. There was a throwing off in city and in country of all virtue and piety and godliness. Everything was aimed at entertainment and fun and drunkenness to such a degree that all these country, all these three countries of Ireland, England, and Scotland were corrupted in their morals. Charles Stuart II was not king for long until he abandoned himself to pleasure and debauchery. And he proceeded by his own personal immorality and his efforts to overturn the whole work of reformation which he had earlier sworn to the Scottish Presbyterians that he would support. Well, now, what do you suppose was one of the first major efforts of the new monarchy and its new parliament? Well, what would you do if you were Charles II? I would disband the new model army. That's what I'd do. And you remember the new model army was the godliest army ever to be gathered in the history of the world, as far as I know. It never lost a battle. It was so intimidating that just the threat of bringing that army in, into uh, Middle Europe or Southern Europe or France in order to stop the persecution of Calvinists caused the persecution of Calvinists to stop all over the world in large, large measure. It was the new model army that gave... Cromwell's government the power to be able to execute, for the first time in history, a king, Charles II's daddy. So, as you would expect, Charles II and his parliament proceeded to pay off and disband Cromwell's army. And its disbanding was amazing. The army was made up of all kinds of perspective. Fifth monarchy men who wanted the millennium to start right now, even if we have to use a cannon to start it. There were the Orthodox Calvinists. There were the Anabaptists. There were the Quakers. There were the Independents. There were the Congregationalists. There were the Anglican Puritans. All of them, disciplined, godly men, took their pay and amazingly faded away. 
Listen to what one man said about the disbursement of the army. In a few months, there remained not a trace indicating that the most formidable army in the world had just been absorbed into the mass of the people of England. The royalists themselves confessed that in every department of honest industry, the discarded warriors prospered beyond other men. None of the veterans were ever charged with theft. None of them ever begged. And if a baker or a mason or a wagoner or a smith attracted notice by his diligence and sobriety, he was in all probability one of Oliver's old soldiers. And they disappeared. December the 8th, 1660, the King and Parliament ordered that the corpses of Cromwell and others be exhumed from Westminster Abbey. And so they exhumed the corpse, which had been in the grave now for a couple of years, of Cromwell, his son-in-law, Ireton, a great Puritan leader, John Bradshaw, who was the chairman of the court that found Charles I guilty, Cromwell's mother and daughter. They dug up Cromwell so they could hang him January the 30th, 1661, to commemorate the death of Charles I. That was ironic because you remember what Cromwell prayed in his last prayer? He said, and I quote, Pardon such as do desire to trample on the dust of a poor worm. Cromwell's body was conveyed through the streets of London openly to the scaffold where it, along with the bodies of Ireton and Bradshaw, were hung up in full gaze of the public. Later that day, their corpses were taken down. The hangman hacked off their heads. The trunks of these men were buried beneath the gallows. The heads were impaled upon tall poles where they remained for years and years. Cromwell's head finally fell in a strong wind was picked up by guard, passed through various hands in sub subsequent centuries, and is today hidden in Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge University. With the restoration of the king, the Stuarts, as you would expect, there was the restoration of the persecution of the Church of Christ and of the Protestant Reformation. Because the Presbyterians helped, stupidly, to restore Charles II, and because many of them had been elected to his parliament, they expected to be treated favorably by the new king. But Charles's chief advisor, Edward Hyde, known as the Earl of Clarendon, had other ideas. Parliament passed a series of measures called the Clarendon Code, which renewed the suppression of Presbyterianism and Calvinism. And you need to know about the Clarendon Code, because the, this... Uh, Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clareton, today is a darling of the Anglicans and the Arminians. He's said to be one of the greatest English statesmen and one of the greatest literary artists of all times. And he wrote one of the histories of this era that's one of the most slanderous books of this particular, uh, of the Puritans of that day. So it's important to know what the Clarendon Code was. This was the law of the land now with the new 
monarchy. First of all, there was a thing called the Corporation Act, 1661. That act excluded from public office anybody who refused to renounce the solemn league and covenant and to take the sacrament according to the right of the Church of England. These guys are smart. They know how to suppress and silence your opposition. You remember what the solemn league and covenant was? That was an alliance made between the parliaments of Scotland and England in the 1640s and the General Assembly of Scotland and the Westminster Assembly and anybody else from any other class or walk of life that wanted to fix their name to it. And uh, it called for all these people pledged themselves to the preservation of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland and to the reformation of the Church of England in doctrine, worship, liturgy, discipline, and government at, uh, if necessary, at the cost of laying down their own lives. And these old Scots Covenanters, which we're going to spend several weeks on, took this seriously, as well as many of the Puritans and the Presbyterians in England. Well, Clarendon realized that he's going to have to get the Presbyterians out of government, the Calvinists, if they're going to go on with their program. And so they passed this Corporation Act, and if you refuse to renounce the Solemn League and Covenant, you can't hold public office. And if you refuse to take the sacrament according to the right of the Church of England and not according to Presbyterian practice, then you can't take public office. Also, if you refuse to swear that you would not resist the king no matter what he does, you were prohibited from ever holding public office. Then there was another act in the Clarendon Code called the Act of Uniformity of 1662. The king liked this one particularly. Here's what the Act of Uniformity said. Now remember what we're telling you about. We're telling you about what is about to be the worst, bloodiest persecution of Calvinists in the history of the world. In England and Scotland and Ireland. So what did the Act of Uniformity require? First of all, it required any preacher that was not ordained by an Anglican bishop has to be reordained because he's not really ordained. Well, now, during the Cromwellian times, these Presbyterians were ordained by Presbyterian Presbyteries, the Independents by Congregationalists. And now the Clarendon Code says if you weren't ordained by an Anglican bishop, you got to be reordained because you're not really a preacher. You think these Presbyterians got reordained? Second thing was required of the Act of Uniformity is that you had to, without any mental reservation, assent to everything contained in the Book of Common Prayer and the administration of the sacraments and other rites and ceremonies of the Church of England. That's what the whole war was about. And the Presbyterians and Independents, you think they could take that vow? Consenting to everything in the Anglican Book of, Com of uh, Common Prayer. Third, they had to take an oath of obedience to the church and to the bishops. Fourth, they had to repudiate the solemn league and covenant. And fifth, they had to take an oath that they would never resist the king and his government for any reason, whatever. Now, you want to guess what day it was that they determined to put the act of uniformity into force? I mean, this is a low blow. It was decreed that the Act of Uniformity would be put into effect 
on St. Bartholomew's Day. You remember St. Bartholomew's Day in France? When the Catholic government told the French Huguenots, the French Calvinists, we're no longer going to persecute you, declare war against you. We're going to throw parties for you all over the place. Peace. We're not going to fight anymore. Don't worry about it. You can trust us. Come on to the parties. And so when all the French Huguenots naively came to the parties, the Roman Catholic French soldiers killed 36,000 of them. Everybody knew about St. Bartholomew's Day. And so it was no accident that the act of uniformity requiring total uniformity to the Anglican Church and the denial of everything the Protestant Reformation was about, Presbyterianism and Calvinism was about, was to take force on the feast of St. Bartholomew's Day. Now, what was the penalty of anybody who refused to uh, take these uh, various requirements? Well, obviously, it was aimed at preachers. And a preacher who refused was deprived of his job, his home, his church, everything and driven into poverty, exile, and homelessness. When St. Bartholomew's Day came and the act was put in force, immediately 2,000 Presbyterian preachers walked away because they would not bow to the tyranny of the king and an Anglican parliament. They abandoned their salaries, they left their homes, they left their churches, and they were driven into utter poverty, 2,000 Presbyterian preachers. By that time, by the way, most Puritans had become Presbyterians because of the influence of the Westminster Assembly. And so the force of the persecution was directed primarily against them. But not all of them were Presbyterians. Nine-tenths of those 2,000 courageous men that refused to bow but rather maintain the supremacy of Christ in the church Nine-tenths of those 2,000 preachers were Presbyterians. There were a hundred independents. Remember what an independent is. An independent is somebody who believes, like Presbyterians believe, in Calvinism, baptizing babies and all that, but they don't believe in a connectional organization of congregations, each congregation remaining the same. The rest, of which there were very few, were just a few Baptists and other sects because there were not many Baptists at that time. Listen to what a man named Hetherington says about that St. Bartholomew's Day. He says, In one respect, the day of St. Bartholomew was a glorious day. It testified to a wandering world the strength and the integrity of Presbyterian principles in their triumph over every earthly influence, or rather, let us say, it proved that the essential spirit of the Presbyterian Church is the spirit of Christianity itself. And therefore it received divine strength in the day of sore trial that it might finish its testimony in behalf of the sole sovereignty of Christ over his own kingdom to the laws and institutions of which man has no right to add and which he cannot without sin diminish. Yes, for the Presbyterian Church and even for the Westminster Assembly by which that church had been introduced into England, it was a glorious day. But what was it for the bishops and for Anglicanism? A day of everlasting infamy, stamping upon its character indelibly the charge proved by so many repeated facts of being essentially a persecuting system of church government. Well, what about the Westminster Divines? You remember they met in the last half of the 1640s, now we're in the 16, early 1660s. What'd they do when the time came to either fight or switch? 
What happened to them when they were faced on St. Bartholomew's with the day with the act of uniformity when 2,000 Presbyterians left their job and their homes rather than compromise Christ? Of the close to 150 or so men that were at the Westminster Assembly, 30 had died by this time. Of the rest, only four signed the Clarendon Code. All the rest suffered poverty for standing for the faith. Then there was another act in the Clarendon Code called the Conventicle Act. And that act penalized anybody who attended worship services not conducted according to the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. So now it was against the law to have a Presbyterian worship service or a Baptist or an independent. And then they passed the Five Mile Act of 1665. What do you think the Five Mile Act is? It's an act banning any nonconformist preacher, that is, any preacher that refused to conform to the uh, act of uniformity because of his love for the Word of God, banned any nonconformist preachers from living in or even visiting any place where he'd former pastor. You couldn't live within five miles of your former congregation. Now, they didn't have cars back then. Five miles was longer than it is now. Well, Charles II is praised by many people today, and little is known about the severe persecution of the Reformed Church under his reign. In fact, it seems almost deliberate to read the way historians have drawn a discreet veil over the persecutions of the Church because of Charles and this narrow-minded Clarendon Code. Clarendon, as I said, remains one of the Anglican and Arminian darlings, extolled as a great statesman, an author of a literary masterpiece, but an author of a great persecuting system. Here's the amazing thing to me. What is it you hear about Calvinism today? Harsh, cruel. What about Arminianism? Meek, merciful. Try convincing people that in 1660. When the Arminians came to power, it proved the exact opposite of what people say. It was the Calvinists who were merciful. It was the Arminians who sided with tyranny who were harsh and persecuting. Every aspect of anti-Christian tyranny familiar to the 20th century had its forerunner and pattern in Arminian England during the Restoration under the Merry Monarch of Charles II. Now, you remember what Arminianism is. We don't have time to go back into it. We spent a whole evening, you remember, talking about the Synod of Dort and this great heretic that the entire Reformed Church throughout the world declared as a heretic because he would not preach and did not preach uh, the purity of the gospel of sovereign grace. Well, now, that particular viewpoint to put the emphasis on man and not on the glory of God's grace was in control of the Church of England so that the Anglican Church was not only a church of uh, backing the tyrants, but the Anglican Church was an Arminian church, and Arminianism has always sided with tyrants. Well, when these laws were put into effect, the conventicles, you remember, outlawing any worship service that wasn't according to Anglican rites, Parliament wanted to end, first of all, the Quakers. Had to get to the Quakers first before they could get to Presbyterians. Really didn't fear the Quakers, but you can't start with the Presbyterians. You've got to start with David Koresh, you know, like we said this morning, before you can get to the saner people. So he started with the Quakers, 
and uh, defined Quaker conventicles as the meeting of five or more persons. So if you met with your family, if there were five of you, and you met to worship, and you weren't doing it according to the Church of England, you were breaking the law. What was the penalty for attendance at such worship services? First conviction, five pounds, three months in a prison full of rats. Second offense, ten pounds, six months in prison. Third offense, if you went to church for the third time when you weren't supposed to, you were banished to a penal colony. After the persecution of the Quakers, these conditions and penalties soon began ex uh, extended, as you would expect, to the Presbyterians and the Independents. By 1662, two years after the restoration of the Stuart monarchy, there were 5,000 Quakers in prison. Some were crowded so close together they couldn't even sit down. Between 1660 and 1668, there were, during the reign of the Merry Monarch, 60,000 arrests for refusal to conform to the Act of Uniformity. And of those 60,000 arrests, 5,000 died in jail. This doesn't count the unbelievable suffering in Scotland. Well, God's going to be faithful to his people. And God's not going to let things like that go by unattended when you deal with the apple of God's eye so harshly. So in 1665 and 1666, God visited London with what is known in the history books as the Great Plague, a bubonic plague brought in by black rats and spread by their fleas. And in that one year, 68,000 people died in London. As if that wasn't enough. During this same time, London was destroyed by the Great Fire, which spread because of a strong wind. Jesus controls the wind. The whole city of London was burned. Then Charles II began to do things that would bring down his reputation. He wanted a war with Holland. And so he initiated the Second Anglo-Dutch War of 1665, which was the clearest case in history of a purely commercial war. There have been a lot since. But this was obvious as to why it was being fought. It wasn't being fought because the properties and the lives, the reputations, the freedom of England were at stake. It was fought over trade and maritime rivalries and disputes over colonies outside of Europe in various parts of the world. Purely commercial. Fought over money. After a couple naval, naval victories for the English under the command of the Duke of York. Anybody know who the Duke of York was? James Stuart, brother of Charles, soon to be James II. Well, when they won these two victories, Charles II prematurely called in all his bigger ships, thinking the war was over. And besides that, Commons, the House of Commons, Parliament was growing tired of this Anglo-Dutch war. But he made a mistake, because in one of the most daring naval operations in history, the Dutch Navy sailed into English bays, bombarded English cities, 
and sailed away with the flagship of the English fleet called the Royal Charles. The Royal Charles, which just happened to be the ship that Charles rode in triumphantly from France and, the, uh, and from uh, Europe into England to take his throne after the Restoration. Well, there was an inconclusive peace signed. The country was deeply humiliated. And, of course, the blame was laid at the feet of Charles. 1670, something very important happened. Charles II's brother, James Stuart, Duke of York, converted to his mother's Roman Catholicism. That very same year, Charles II announced his attention, intention to join the Roman Catholic Church and of carrying his English subjects with him. He entered in, I get this, he entered into secret negotiations with Louis XIV of France, the great Sun King. And Charles II concluded a secret treaty with France known as the Treaty of Dover in 1670. In that treaty, Charles declared his intention to publicly come out in favor of Roman Catholicism as soon as it was convenient for him. And Louis XIV promised to aid Charles II with money and soldiers to enforce the reconversion of England back to the Roman Catholic faith. Then both kings agreed that they would attack Calvinistic Holland, their former ally. This secret treaty of Dover was one of the most despicable and discreditable instruments in the history of English diplomacy. And you can imagine when it was found out the impact it had upon this non-Catholic country. Charles began his third Anglo-Dutch war. Right after he issued, and this was good politics, he thought, right after he issued the Decla uh, Declaration of Indulgence, which suspended all punishments for crime uh, against, uh, which suspended all crimes, their punishments against nonconformist Roman Catholics. In other words, he declares now that all the laws prohibiting that were restrictive of independence, that were restrictive of the Calvinists, that were restrictive of the Roman Catholics, are now null and void. Now, why did he do that? That was his. He was fulfilling his part of the bargain. You remember what he said to Louis XIV? He said, as soon as it's convenient, we're going to advance the purposes of Roman Catholicism. His concern was not to give the nonconformists more freedom of religion. He had to do that so that he could give the Roman Catholics for the first time in a decade the freedom of religion. He also suspended payment of interests, of interest on money borrowed from London bankers, driving many of those banks into bankruptcy. Because of the fierce anti-Catholic sentiments of the Parliament, Parliament forced the king to abandon his declaration and demanded the passage of a bill whereby military and civil office holders would be required to take the Lord's Supper according to the rights of the Church of England. And the king agreed to this, and it's called the Test Act. Now, that's important. Now, they had the Act of Uniformity, causing 2,000 people to leave their homes and churches, preachers. Now, in order... To have freedom of religion for the Roman Catholics because of the Treaty of Dover, he announces a declaration of indulgence. Parliament, Anglican, Anglo, uh, anti-Roman Catholic, does not want the Roman Catholics to have freedom of worship, and so they demand that it be repealed, which it was. Hence, 
Not only is Roman Catholic worship illegal once again, but also is Reformed worship illegal once again. And then Parliament told the king, he said, in effect, we, we don't trust you. And therefore, if anybody's ever going to hold office in the military or in the state, he has to take the Lord's Supper according to the rites of the Church of England. Now, no Roman Catholic would do that. And, of course, no Presbyterian, no Independent would do that. That's called the Test Act. Well, as soon as that act was passed, of course, the Duke of York, James Stewart, great Catholic that he was, Lord High Admiral of the English Navy, resigned from office. From that point in time, things just went from bad to worse for the English. Charles got tired of fighting against the Dutch. He was getting nowhere, so he told Louis XIV, in so many words, forget the treaty. I want to get out of this war as quickly as I can. So they sued for a modest peace. The war got nowhere, it meant nothing, it accomplished nothing, but Charles II spent six million pounds and sacrificed thousands of lives for commerce. There were a lot, of, a lot of dramatic changes that took place during the reign of Charles II. The first was the end of absolute monarchy. Between the Roman Catholic atmosphere of the court and the anti-papal fury of Parliament lay a deep gulf. Puritanism was persecuted, but it wasn't destroyed. It had been driven underground, and it remained there. It never left. It continued to grow. It was always there to come to the surface. During this same period of time, interestingly enough, in the late 1660s, you have the beginning of political parties. First political party was the court party that supported Charles II, the country party that didn't. Then you had the Whig party which supported a republic and was against the Stuarts versus the Tories, who were great defenders of the, of the monarchy and of the Stuarts, and the beginning of political parties and two-party systems back there in Charles II's day. Remember, these last two Stuarts, Stuart males, Charles and James, would love to have had the absolute monarchy of their father and grandfather, but they couldn't do it. The monarchy now was limited. They tried to restrain it by various constitutions of one sort or another. The king had to work through parliament. And in the last years of King Charles II and in the short reign of King James I, we hear the swan song of the absolute monarchy. And it was because of Oliver Cromwell. English kings and queens have never been the same since the days of the Lord Protectorate. Prior to that, they were absolute tyrants. After that, to one degree or another, they've been chained to Parliament or to constitutions. Also, under Charles II, there was the de-Christianization of English, the de-Christianization of English culture. In the institutions of higher learning, scholars began to turn from the old writers of the Reformation to the new ideas of the French and Dutch humanists like Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz. And before the end of the 17th century, Christianity in England was pushed into a defensive mode. Music, drama, literature were largely secularized. While hysteria and religious persecutions abounded on one hand, on the other, Charles II's court became the most immoral court in Europe. And it mocked Christianity. Listen to what Otto Scott says about it.
Manners were used to disguise morals. Ceremonial grace to gild obscene literature and theatrics. Profane speech and behavior. Adultery became fashionable. Men swore to be faithful only to their mistresses. At the top of the pyramid was Charles II, master of revels, the living embodiment of pleasure above all, of successful sin. He was the man who set the example for the court, the theater, society, and the times. He had found time when he was 18 years old in Scotland to make a mistress of Lucy Walters. A long stream of women followed. Thirteen were prominent enough to be known by name. Dozens were creatures of the night. His years of exile had convinced Charles that every man has a price, for he had sold himself time and again. For virtually his entire reign, he was on the payroll of Louis XIV of France. The king of England was a spy for France on the English people. There was also the dechristianization of political theory. You remember the old covenantal politics of John Knox and the Westminster Assembly. That said political institutions are based upon a series of covenants. A covenant that a king makes with God, that he as a man will be faithful to God and that he'll rule this people by God's law. A covenant he makes with the people, that he'll protect them according to the law of God. A covenant the people make with the king, that they'll be faithful to him as long as he's faithful to the covenant. And a covenant the people make to God, that they'll be faithful to the living God. If the king broke those covenants, the people would consider his authority null and void. This all came from John Knox and the Scottish Reformation and the Westminster Assembly. Well, now those old covenantal politics had been secularized and de-Christianized by such men as John Locke, who sought for liberty and justice based on common sense and human reason rather than on the written word of God. These new writers believed in a limited government, religious equality. They distrusted democracy as we know it and saw the first duty of the state not to enforce and obey God's law, but to protect property. James II never caught on. He didn't realize how people's political mind was being changed. And he was always trying to turn the clock back to the old days of the divine right of kings and to the absolute monarchy of his father and grandfather. However, after all the ups and downs of his reign, Charles II recovered his commanding authority over his administration and over England. The succession of his bigoted Roman Catholic brother was assured. However, on February the 1st, 1685, Charles II was suddenly taken ill. When he, was real, when he realized he was dying, he called for an aged Roman Catholic priest who had helped him escape from Oliver Cromwell after the Battle of Worcester 34 years before. He smuggled the Roman Catholic priest into his bedchamber, and there he received extreme unction, and Charles II publicly became a Roman Catholic. Charles passed away. James II, already a Roman Catholic, came to the throne and was the first Roman Catholic ruler of England since Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary only killed 300 people.
James and Charles, tens of thousands. They were thorns in the eyes of the church in England. Let us pray. Father, may we learn the lessons of your word well. For Christ's sake, amen.